Good morning. And compliments of the new season. We haven't seen each other since the beginning uh, of the year. It's good to be here. And thank you for the invitation. Thank you to Pastor Joe, who is not with us today, for the invitation as well. Um, where we turn our Bibles to Haggai. Haggai. Chapter 1. The first 15 verses. You know, these are some of the little books that we rarely <laughs> look at. <laughs> uh, but they are jewels hidden within the other books of interest. Yeah. Wonderful jewels. I'll read the first 15 verses. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheetel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of the host, because of my house that lies in ruins. While each of you busies himself with his own house, therefore the heavens above you have withheld the Jew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain and the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on men and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shetan, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God has sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Agai the messenger of the Lord spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheetel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and the spirit of the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. On the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that 
It is alive even today. It is still relevant even in our times. Oh, we pray, Lord, as we sit to feast at your table, that you may speak to us and teach us your word. May we humbly receive it with joy and gladness in our hearts as your very own word. Amen. Friends, let me start by asking a question. I love asking questions. You know, what are the things that we prioritize in our lives? What are the things that are of value in our lives? Things that have become so important in our lives to the point that they have taken the place that is supposed to be occupied by God in our lives. Friends, I know that we have so many things that we think are of importance. Things that we prioritize in our lives. Things, things like our careers, things like our jobs, our homes, our families, our successes, our relationships, and even our marriages. To the extent that God and his work become relegated to the peripheries in our lives. You know, it is not worth to note, friends, that everything that takes place, that takes the place of God in our lives is an idol. So many of us commit idolatry because of misplaced priorities. Because the things that we value usually takes precedence over God. The things that we value takes precedence over worship and service. And this is what we see a guy coming to address as he indicts the returnees for failing to make God a priority in their lives. That encourages them to make God a priority. And this is what, and this was to be seen in the resuming the work of constructing the temple. The intention of rebuilding the temple and reinstituting worship of Yahweh in Jerusalem. And yet, when we, when we look at this, um, when we look at this passage of scripture, we are seeing people that were beginning to prioritize other things. So 18 years later, after their return, the temple still lied in ruins. The people were barely surviving on meager crops and insufficient water. And there was a general discouragement that had set in in this post-exilic community in Jerusalem. So it is in this context of discouragement and spiritual disorientation that the word of, Lord, of the Lord comes to these people through the prophet Agai. To speak into their lives. So that there may be transformation. In the way that they valued the things in their lives. So, in chapter 1 of Agai, we are seeing in the opening oracle that Agai is offering. And that opening oracle offers a powerful challenge to the spiritual liturgy of God's people. 
identifying the secret idols of their hearts and calling them to renewed faith and obedience. So I want to set the context of this prophecy by Haggai. Remember that in 586 BC, God's people were exiled from the land of Judah because they persisted in unbelief, violating the terms of the covenant. As a result, God brought upon them the ultimate covenant case in the form of a foreign nation. The Babylonians came, they came and conquered and they took them into exile. God used the Babylonians to bring about judgment upon his own people. If you turn to 2 Kings 21, starting at verse 10, we hear the Bible saying, And the Lord said by his servants the prophet, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him, and has made Judah also to sin with his idols, therefore thus says the Lord, the God, of Israel, behold, I'm bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ab. I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies. And they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight and they have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt even to this day. So moreover Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. So besides the sin that he made Judah to sin so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So as a result of this, Judah was taken into captivity. The temple and the city was destroyed. The Davidic king was removed from the throne. However, remember that God who is gracious in all his ways had promised in Deuteronomy 30 that, and this is what the Bible says, and when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I've set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And I will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the outmost parts of the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will take you and the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed that you may possess it and will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offsprings so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these cases on your foes and enemies who persecute you and shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law, 
when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And in Jeremiah 29 verse 10 he says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. God also promised the fulfillment of the covenant promises to bless the nations in Genesis 12 verse 3 and also in Isaiah 10 verse 20. In that day the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. In truth, a remnant will retain the remnant of Jacob to the, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord, God of hosts, will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. So all this which was promised in the scriptures was fulfilled. And when the time the Lord had promised had come in 538 BC, Cyrus, the king of Persia, did put an edict which allowed the Jews to return to their land with a commission to rebuild the temple to their God and reinstitute worship according to their laws. We find that in Ezra chapter 1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by men of his, of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, beads, besides free will offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So as a result of these providential outworkings, the Jews retained about 50,000 of them. They arrived and started initial building. Ezra records that at first progress on the project was good. The people were excited. The people were unified. The people were hopeful as the foundation was laid amidst the shoutings of young men and the tears of old men. We see that in Ezra chapter 3 starting at verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with symbols to praise the Lord according to the direction of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising God and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because of the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers, old men, we had seen the first house wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. 
Though many shouted aloud for, aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. So when the foundation of this house was laid, there was joy. People were filled with joy. Besides the old man we had seen, the former glory of Solomon's temple. Those are the men that wept. But however, before much had been done, the work faced opposition from the Samaritans who threw obstacles in the way and sought to stop the work. So during the life of Cyrus, the efforts were futile. But after Cyrus died in battle, these efforts were, resu were resumed under Ahasuerus. If you read in Ezra chapter 4, starting at verse 1, that's quite a huge context. So many readings. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the retained exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and you have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Asahadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the fathers, the, the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purposes all the days of Cyrus, a king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. So this opposition gained traction, and finally, the opposers obtained the suspension of the work under Artaxerxes. If you read Ezra chapter 4, verse 7 to 23, we then see that the work ceased, and worse yet, nobody seemed to care. As the zeal of the people had grown cold, they turned to the greedy advancement of their own private lives, which took precedence over the work of God's kingdom. So thus, 18 years later, in 520 BC, the temple remained in ruins as the people of God had pre been, become preoccupied with securing their own worldly comforts. So it is into this situation that God raised Haggai and other prophets to come with a powerful word of warning and promise. They warned Israel of the dangers of forsaking their God and reminded Israel of God's unwavering commitment to his people's welfare. So you will notice that there are three dominating themes in these post-exilic prophets. God's sovereignty over the nations, his presence with his people, and his commitment to the future glory of both Israel and other nations. So it is important for us to note as well that the physical restoration of the city was, crucial, was a crucial component in the development of God's unfailing purpose of redemption in preparing the way of the coming of Christ. Malachi 3 says, Behold, I sent my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So Haggai, as one of the post-exilic prophets, comes and presents messages to the people 
through their leaders Zerubbabel and Joshua. So Agai presents five oracles in this short book. The first oracle, you see it in chapter 1 verse 1. The second oracle, you see it in chapter 1 verse 15. And this was delivered, the first one was delivered on the 29th of August, 520 BC. I'm not using the, I'm using the modern calendar. <laughs> and the second one was delivered on the 21st of September, 520 BC. The third one, which is chapter 2 verse 1, was delivered on the 17th of October, 520 BC. The fourth one, which is chapter 2 verse 10, was delivered on the 18th of December, 520 BC. And the last one, which is chapter 2 verse 20, was delivered on the 18th of December, 520 BC. So let me ask another question. So who were these two individuals to whom the messages of the Lord came to? Zerubbabel was the grandson of the last legitimate king of Judah, Jehoiakim. First Chronicles 3 verse 17 to 19. He was qualified to succeed David, but under the patient domination, he had to settle for the office of the governor. And Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, is mentioned in Ezra chapter 3 verse 2 and verse 8 in chapter 5 verse 2 and in Nehemiah chapter 12 verse 26. He was part of the Aaronic lineage through Zadok. So thus, the Davidic royal descent as well as the Aaronic priests they meet in this post-exilic age as common recipients of God's word of hope and promise through Haggai. So as we go through these verses, I want us to notice that in these messages, God confronts his people's idolatries and misplaced priorities, calling them to renewed faith and calling them to repentance. And that fruit of repentance was to be exhibited in their faithfulness in rebuilding the temple. So what is it that a guy confronts in these verses? In verse 1 and 2, he confronts their reinterpretation of God's word. They had reinterpreted God's word. We read that in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Agai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheetal, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So notice what the prophet is saying, is that the people had reinterpreted God's word. They are saying, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. In the face of opposition, in the face of trials of faith, they chose comfortable resolution after facing clashes with the enemy of God. The assumption is that if God wanted to rebuild, the, he wanted them to rebuild the temple, the opposition could not have hindered the project. And yet when you look at this passage of scripture, God does not point to opposition to be the reason why work had stopped. He points to them. They are the reason why this work has stopped. They did not think it was a priority. And that is what the, the word is saying. They are saying it is not yet time. That is what the Lord is saying. They are saying the time has not yet come. 
Isn't it what we do, friends? That we redefine God's word to suit our circumstances and situations. We reinterpret it to make it easier for us so that it does not confront this sin and that sin. We reinterpret it to justify our passivity for not doing what we are called to do. These were saying if it was time to rebuild, there would be no opposition or struggle. So since there is opposition, it is not yet time to rebuild. So they, they began to rationalize their passivity. Indeed, God does not want us to do it at least any time soon. So it's not yet time for us to do what we are supposed to do. We do that, don't we? We, we, we redefine doctrines to suit the times and to suit the things that we want to do. We redefine what, 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 what the word of God says about certain circumstances, certain scenes. No, 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 it's, 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 it's just living together. There's nothing sinful about what we are doing. We, we intend to marry, isn't it? And you see the church justifying it. You know, think of many of the things that we have comfortably reinterpreted and redefined. We call them choices. Now they are their choices. We we are allowing each other to make choices in life. Friends, the prophet comes and confronts that. These people are saying it is not yet time. And he confronts that. Not only does he confront that, but he confronts misplaced priorities. Verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat but you never have enough. You drink but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself but no one is home. And he who ends wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of force. Because my house, because of my house that lies in ruins. While each of you busies himself with his own house, therefore the heavens above you have withheld the Jew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain and the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. So the second issue raised is that of misplaced priorities. They have turned their focus to personal comfort and survival and the neglect of God's work in the temple. They had redirected their efforts to personal survival and comforts. 
They had paneled their houses while the Lord's house remained in ruins. Priorities shifted from kingdom work to personal concerns. I know we do that as well. We sometimes focus on ourselves at the expense of the gospel and and God's kingdom. I want us to ask ourselves this question. What is it that is preeminence in my life? Is it not my education? Is it not my family perhaps? My wife or my career? How much have we neglected the kingdom because we do not have time to do the things that we are called to do because my time is preoccupied with my family currently. You know, how much have we neglected what we are supposed to do because we say it will cost me more than what I'm, supposed, what I'm prepared to part with because the majority of my income is allocated to myself. It's back to school. Schools are expensive. It's allocated to my projects. It's allocated to leisure. I need to go on holiday at least once or twice a year. Don't we say that? How often have we neglected our worship of God at the pursuit of leisure? Or even a good book? Friends, even a good book can be an idol. By our favorite authors, those that we love, very sound and reformed. I've seen people neglecting, gathering together because he's got this good book that he's going through. So he doesn't have time. Or even social programs. I love Arsenal. I, I, I see people neglecting worship because, because, because Arsenal is playing, Manchester is playing. You know, put a program on a Saturday when their favorite team is playing and see how many people will come. So the Lord asks these people, is it time for you yourself to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? And a guy continues delivering God's message. And in verse 5 he says, now therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. How could you pervert your priorities that the Lord takes second place in your lives? Think carefully of your ways. Reflect on your ways. Pay attention to your ways. This is what the Lord is calling his people to do. Consider your ways. Friends, if someone says this to you, it means that there's something that you're not doing well. Your walk is not straight. There are areas of life that you may need to change. Things that you may need to do away with. So here the Lord is calling out these retainees who had schooled priorities to think through how they are behaving and conducting themselves. Consider your ways. And this is repeated again in verse 7. That says the Lord of hosts. Consider your ways. So he calls them to do this so that they might understand the connection between the ne their negligence of God's house and their total lack of success in everyday life. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you, have ne you, you, you never have enough. You drink but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. That says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills. Bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much. Behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. 
So you, you see what, what, what God is saying to these people? So what a guy is doing in these passages is showing them the futility of selfish effort. As the people had planted abundantly, they harvested little. The return was little. They ate and they drank, but they never got their fill. Even their clothing were inadequate to keep them warm. Prophets which came their way were lost through the holes that were in their places. A guy is showing them the consequences of misplaced priorities. Friends, it is clear that putting self-effort is always self-defeating. As the prophet makes it clear in verse 9, that what is happening is because the Lord is blowing it away because of his house which lies in ruins. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, hear what the Lord says, I blew it away. Why? Because of the house that lies in ruins. While each of you busies himself with his own house. So it is clear that the people's failure to address the highest thing of priority had driven them to poverty and economic chaos. But let me put a disclaimer. I'm not saying that every believer who is going through challenges is because he has neglected something in his life. God is in his providence may allow those things to happen in our lives. So there is no doctrinal statement here. I have had such preachings. There is no doctrinal statement here. Let me say that clear. But God is addressing this context. This very context of the returnees who were facing economic chaos and poverty because they had neglected what they were supposed to do. So do not go out there and tell people you are suffering because you are neglecting the house of the Lord. Let me say that clear. But what we are learning from here is that we need to set our priorities right and prioritize God and his kingdom. But what I like in this rebuke is that there is hope. There is hope in this rebuke. Listen to what verse 8 says. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Friends, the Lord, by his solemn declaration, assures the people that he would be pleased and be glorified if they returned to the work of rebuilding the temple. But then the question then is, how did the people respond to this rebuke? They were rebuked for reinterpreting the word of God. They were rebuked for misplaced priorities. How did they respond? Verse 12 to 15, the response. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shetel, the son, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Agai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Agai the messenger of the Lord spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord steered up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shetel, governor of Judah, the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of, the, of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. On the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius, the king. 
Friends, the rebuke and the appeal had the desired result. And that is what is shown by the scriptures. Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheetel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. You know, notice that Zerubbabel, the civil leader, Joshua, the religious leader, led the people to respond in obedience to Haggai's rebuke. They did not look at Haggai's word as his own, but they treated Haggai's word as the very own word of God. Friends, we will do well when we hear words of rebuke from gospel preachers and treat it as the very own word of God, not a word of man. I love what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Speaking to the church at Thessalonica, he says that we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you had from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. So we will do well to receive the rebuke from gospel preachers and treat they are preaching as the very one word of God. So not only did they obey God, but they feared the Lord. What then is to fear the Lord? It is to express loyalty and faithfulness to his covenant. It is to put our trust in him and to have a hatred of evil and to turn away from evil and sin. Fearing God is living in the reality of God and factoring him into all the issues of life. And this affects both attitude and action. Fearing the Lord puts things in their proper perspective and corrects good priorities, providing a strong motive to the kind of action that pleases the Lord. So these people feared the Lord. Friends, here's the question, do we really fear the Lord? If we do, here's a follow-up question. What is it that we put our trust in? Do we truly hate evil? and cling to what is good. And friends, if we tend away from evil, if indeed we fear God, what are our priorities like? What is it that takes preeminence in our lives? Is it your marriage? You need to introspect and look at it. What, what, what value am I putting on him? Is it having more value than God? Is it a relationship? You know, I struggle with young men and young women who think that a boy is the alpha and omega of their lives. I know singles who look at me and say, hey, my friend, you don't understand. I do understand. I was one single. <laughs> what is it that takes preeminence in your life? And notice also that they responded by being doers of the word. Verse 14, 15. And the Lord stayed up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheetel, governor of Judah, the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. 
On the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. You know, Haggai was the preacher. But it was not his eloquence that persuaded the people to act. The Lord steered them up. He arose them, causing them to put into motion Haggai's convicting word. Haggai's preaching was the means God used to achieve his purpose. As a result, the people regained lost the the lost vision and gave themselves once again to the work that they had neglected. You know, this is a vivid reminder that sermons without the accompanying activity of God's spirit are powerless. Friends, it is God who works in us to both to will and to work for his good pleasure. As Paul says in Philippians 2.13. And this humbles me as a preacher to know that conviction and revival in people as I proclaim the gospel is not as a result of my eloquence but of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will and this is what happens here so here we see that they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of us their God they responded in obedience to the rebuke by the Lord the prophet came and spoke God steered their hearts Preaching is a necessity. It is a necessity. We are in a generation which says they don't need preachers. You need a preacher. God convicts us through the preaching of men who preach faithfully the gospel. So they had the message. They responded in obedience. So friends, let me ask this question as I come to a conclusion. How do we respond to the preaching of the word of God? Do we respond like this in obedience? Or we find excuses? And we harden our hearts as Israel did when they rebelled? How do we respond to the rebuke I pray that we may respond in obedience of faith. Because the things that we prioritize, these riches, the comforts, the power, family, pleasure, sex, they make promises that they cannot keep. Remember that only that which is done for Christ gives fulfillment and will last forever. Idols that we prioritize, they do not last and they do not give fulfillment as we have seen in this passage of scripture. Will you make God your priority in life? May he take preeminence over everything that you thought was of value. May Christ and him alone be the one who takes preeminence in your life. Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for speaking to us and for rebuking us. And even as I was preaching, there are many areas in my life that you were pointing or that I 
and my brothers and sisters gathered here today may turn our eyes to you and abandon all things that we think are of significance and cling to Christ and him alone for in him we move and we have our being he is our very own life may we see him as such amen